Masterpieces of Mystery, The Beast with Five Fingers, by William F. Harvey. When I was a little boy, I once went with my father to call on Adrian Ballsover. I played on the floor with a black spaniel while my father appealed for subscription. Just before we left, my father said, Mr. Borsover, may my son here shake hands with you. It will be a thing to look back upon with pride when he grows to be a man. I came up to the bed on which the old man was lying and put my hands in his, awed by the still beauty of his face. He spoke to me kindly and hoped that I should always try to please my father. Then he placed his right hand on my head and asked for a blessing to rest upon me. Amen, said my father, and I followed him out of the room, feeling as if I wanted to cry. But my father was an excellent spirit. That old gentleman, Jim, said he, is the most wonderful man in the whole town. For ten years he has been quite blind. But I saw his eyes, I said. They were ever so black and shiny. They weren't shut up like Nora's puppies. Can't he see at all? And so I learnt, for the first time, that a man might have eyes that looked dark and beautiful and shining without being able to see. Just like Mrs. Tomlinson has big ears. I said, and can't hear at all except when Mr. Tomlinson shouts. Jim, said my father, it's not right to talk about a lady's ears. Remember what Mr. Bolsover said about pleasing me and being a good boy. That was the only time I saw Adrian Bolsover. I soon forgot about him and the hand which he laid in blessing on my head, but for a week I prayed that those dark, tender eyes might see. His spaniel may have puppies, I said in my prayers, and he will never be able to know how funny they look with their eyes all closed up. Please let Mr. Borsover see. Adrian Borsover, as my father had said, was a wonderful man. He came of an eccentric family. Borsover's sons, for some reason, always seemed to marry very ordinary women, which perhaps accounted for the fact that no Borsover had been a genius, and only one Borsover had been mad. But they were great champions of little causes, generous patrons of odd sciences, founders of querulous sects, trustworthy guides to the bypath meadows of erudition. Adrian was an authority on the fertilisation of orchids. He had held at one time the family living at Borsover Conyers, until a congenital weakness of the lungs obliged him to seek a less rigorous climate in the sunny south coast watering place where I had seen him. Occasionally he would relieve one or other of the local clergy. My father described him as a fine preacher who gave long and inspiring sermons for what many men would have considered unprofitable texts. An excellent proof, he would add, of the truth of the doctrine of direct verbal inspiration. Adrian Bolsover was exceedingly clever with his hands. His penmanship was exquisite. He illustrated all his scientific papers, made his own woodcuts, and carved the reredos that, as at present, the chief feature of interest in the church at Bolsover Conyers. He had an exceedingly clever knack in cutting silhouettes for young ladies and paper pigs and cows or little children, and made more than one complicated wind instrument of his own devising. When he was fifty years old, Adrian Borsover lost his sight. In a wonderfully short time, he had adapted himself to the new conditions of life. He quickly learned to read Braille. So marvellous indeed was his sense of touch that he was still able to maintain his interest in botany. The mere passing of his long, supple fingers over a flower was sufficient means for its identification, although occasionally he would use his lips. I have found several letters of his among my father's correspondence. In no case was there anything to show that he was afflicted with blindness, and this in spite of the fact that he exercised undue economy in the spacing of lines. Toward the close of his life, the old man was credited with powers of touch that seemed almost uncanny. 
It has been said that he could tell at once the colour of a ribbon placed between his fingers. My father would neither confirm nor deny the story. Chapter 1 Adrian Borsover was a bachelor. His elder brother, George, had married late in life, leaving one son, Eustace, who lived in the gloomy Georgian mansion at Bolsover Conyers, where he could work undisturbed in collecting material for his great book on heredity. Like his uncle, he was a remarkable man. The Bolsovers had always been born naturalists, but Eustace possessed, in a special degree, the power of systematising his knowledge. He had received his university education in Germany, and then, after postgraduate work in Vienna and Naples, had travelled for four years in South America in the East, getting together a huge store of material for a new study into the processes of variation. He lived alone at Bolsover Conyers with Saunders, his secretary, a man who bore a somewhat dubious reputation in the district, but whose powers as a mathematician, combined with his business abilities, were invaluable to Eustace. Uncle and nephew saw little of each other. The visits of Eustace were confined for a week in the summer of autumn, long weeks that dragged almost as slowly as the bath chair in which the old man was drawn along the sunny seafront. In their way, the two men were fond of each other, though their intimacy would doubtless have been greater had they shared the same religious views. Adrian held to the old-fashioned evangelical dogmas of his early manhood. His nephew for many years had been thinking of embracing Buddhism. Both men possessed, too, the reticence the Bolsovers had always shown, and which their enemies sometimes called hypocrisy. With Adrian it was a reticence as to the things he had left undone, but with Eustace it seemed that the curtain which he was so careful to leave undrawn hid something more than a half-empty chamber. Two years before his death, Adrian Borsover developed, unknown to himself, the not uncommon power of automatic writing. Eustace made the discovery by accident. Adrian was sitting reading in bed, the forefinger of his left hand tracing the braille characters, while his nephew noticed that a pencil the old man held in his right hand was moving slowly along the opposite page. He left his seat in the window and sat down beside the bed. The right hand continued to move, and now he could see plainly that they were letters and words which it was forming. Adrian Bolsover wrote the hand. Eustace Bolsover, George Bolsover, Francis Bolsover, Sigismund Bolsover, Adrian Bolsover, Eustace Bolsover, Saville Bolsover, B for Bolsover, Honesty is the best policy, beautiful Belinda Bolsover. Curious nonsense, said Eustace to himself. King George III ascended the throne in 1760, wrote the hand, crowd, a noun of multitude, a collection of individuals, Adrian Borsover, Eustace Borsover. It seems to me, said his uncle, closing the book, that you had much better make the most of the afternoon sunshine and take your walk now. I think perhaps I will, Eustace answered as he picked up the volume. I won't go far, and when I come back I can read to you those articles in nature about which we were speaking. He went along the promenade, but stopped at the first shelter, and seating himself in the corner, best protected from the wind, he examined the book at leisure. Nearly every page was scored with a meaningless jungle of pencil marks, rows of capital letters, short words, long words, complete sentences, copybook tags. The whole thing, in fact, had the appearance of a copybook. And on a more careful scrutiny, Eustace thought that there was ample evidence to show that the handwriting at the beginning of the book, good though it was, was not nearly so good as the handwriting at the end. He left his uncle at the end of October, with a promise to return early in December. It seemed to him quite clear that the old man's power of automatic writing was developing rapidly, and for the first time he looked forward to a visit that combined duty with interest. But on his return he was at first disappointed. His uncle, he thought, looked older. He was listless too, 
preferring others to read to him and dictating nearly all of his letters. Not until the day before he left had Eustace an opportunity of observing Adrian Bolsover's newfound faculty. The old man, propped up in bed with pillows, had sunk into a light sleep. His two hands lay on the coverlet, his left hand tightly clasping his right. Eustace took an empty manuscript book and placed a pencil within reach of the fingers of the right hand. They snatched at it eagerly, then dropped the pencil to unloose the left hand from its restraining grasp. Perhaps to prevent interference I'd better hold that hand, said Eustace to himself as he watched the pencil, almost immediately began to write. Plundering Bolsover is unnecessary, unnatural, and extraordinarily eccentric, culpably curious. Who are you? asked Eustace in a low voice. Never you mind, wrote the hand of Adrian. Is it my uncle who is writing? Oh, my prophetic soul, mine uncle. Is it anyone I know? Silly Eustace, you'll see me very soon. When shall I see you? When poor old Adrian's dead. When shall I see you? Where shall I see you? Where shall you not? Instead of speaking his next question, Bolsover wrote it. What is the time? The fingers dropped the pencil and moved three or four times across the paper. Then, picking up the pencil, they wrote, Ten minutes before four. Put your book away, Eustace. Adrian mustn't find us at working at this sort of thing. He doesn't know what to make of it, and I won't have poor old Adrian disturbed. Au revoir. Adrian Bolsover awoke with a start. I've been dreaming again, he said. Such queer dreams of leaguered cities and forgotten towns. You're mixed up in this one, Eustace, though I can't remember how. Eustace, I want to warn you. Don't walk in doubtful paths. Choose your friends well. Your poor grandfather. A fit of coughing put an end to what he was saying, but Eustace saw that the hand was still writing. He managed unnoticed to draw the book away. I'll light the gas, he said, and ring for tea. On the other side of the bed curtain he saw the last sentences that had been written. It's too late, Adrian, he read. We're friends already, aren't we, Eustace Bolsover? On the following day, Eustace Bolsover left. He thought his uncle looked ill when he said goodbye, and the old man spoke despondently of the failure his life had been. Nonsense, uncle, said his nephew. You have got over your difficulties in a way not one in a hundred thousand would have done. Everyone marvels at your splendid perseverance in teaching your hand to take the place of your lost sight. To me it's been a revelation of the possibilities of education. Education? said his uncle dreamily, as if the word had started a new train of thought. Education is good, so long as you know whom and for what purpose you give it. But with the lower orders of men, the base and more sordid spirits, I have grave doubts as to its results. Well, goodbye, Eustace. I may not see you again. You are a true Bolsover, with all the Bolsover faults. Marry, Eustace. Marry some good, sensible girl. And if by any chance I don't see you again... My will is at my solicitors. I have not left you any legacy, because I know you're well provided for. But I thought you might like to have my books. Oh, and there's just one thing. You know, before the end, people often lose control of themselves and make absurd requests. Don't pay any attention to them, Eustace. Goodbye. And he held out his hand. Eustace took it. It remained in his a fraction of a second longer than he had expected, and gripped him with a virility that was surprising. There was, too, in its touch, a subtle sense of intimacy. Why, uncle, he said, as you see you alive and well for many long years to come. Two months later, Adrian Borsover died. Chapter 2 Eustace Borsover was in Naples at the time. He read the obituary notice in the morning post on the day announced for the funeral. 
Poor old fellow, he said. I wonder where I shall find room for all his books. The question occurred to him again with greater force when, three days later, he found himself standing in the library at Bolsover Conyers, a huge room built for use and not for beauty in the year of Waterloo by a Bolsover who was an ardent admirer of the great Napoleon. It was arranged on the plan of many college libraries, with tall projecting bookcases forming deep recesses of dusty silence, fit graves for the old hates of forgotten controversy, the dead passions of forgotten lives. At the end of the room, behind the bust of some unknown eighteenth-century divine, an ugly iron corkscrew stair led to a shelf-lined gallery. Nearly every shelf was full. I must talk to Saunders about it said Eustace. I suppose that it will be necessary to have the billiard room fitted up with bookcases. The two men met for the first time, after many weeks in the dining room that evening. Hello, said Eustace, standing before the fire with his hands in his pockets. How goes the world's orders? Why, these dressed hogs! He himself was wearing an old shooting jacket. He did not believe in mourning, as he had told his uncle on his last visit, and though he usually went in for quiet-coloured ties, he wore this evening one of an ugly red in order to shock Morton the butler, and to make them thrash out the whole question of mourning for themselves in the servants' hall. Eustace was a true Bolsover. The world, said Saunders, goes the same as usual, confoundedly slow. The dress dogs are accounted for by an invitation from Captain Lockwood the bridge. How are you getting there? I've told your coachman to drive me in your carriage. Any objection? Oh, dear me, no. We had all things in common for far too many years for me to raise objections at this hour of the day. We all find your correspondence in the library, went on Saunders. Most of it I've seen, too. There are a few private letters I haven't opened. There's also a box with a rat, or something, inside it, that came by the evening post. Very likely it's the six-toed beast Terry was sending us to cross with the four-toed albino. I don't look, because I didn't want to mess up my things. But I should gather from the words jumping that it's pretty hungry. Oh, I'll see to it, said Eustace, while you and the captain earn an honest penny. Dinner over and Saunders gone, Eustace went into the library. Though the fire had been lit, the room was by no means cheerful. We'll have all the lights on at any rate, he said, as he turned the switches. And Morden, he added when the butler brought the coffee, get me a screwdriver or something to undo this box. Whatever the animal is, he's kicking up the juice of a row. What is it? Why are you dawdling? If you please, sir, when the postman brought it, he told me that they bored the holes in the lid of the post office. There were no breathing holes in the lid, sir. They didn't want the animal to die. That is all, sir. It's culpably careless of the man, whoever he was, said Eustace, as he removed the screws, packing an animal like this in a wooden box with no means of getting air. Confound it all, I meant to ask Morton to bring me a cage to put it in. Now I suppose I shall have to get one myself. He placed a heavy book on the lid from which the screws had been removed and went into the billiard room. As he came back into the library with an empty cage in his hand, he heard the sound of something falling and then of something scuttling along the floor. Bother it, the beasts got out. How in the world am I to find it again in this library? To search for it did indeed seem hopeless. He tried to follow the sound of the scuttling in one of the recesses, where the animal seemed to be running behind the books and the shelves, but it was impossible to locate it. Eustace resolved to go on quietly reading. Very likely the animal might gain confidence and show itself. Saunders seemed to have dealt in his usual methodical manner with most of the correspondence. There were still the private letters. What was that? Two sharp clicks, and the lights in the hideous candelabra that hung from the ceiling suddenly went out. They wonder if something has gone wrong with the fuse, said Eustace as he went to the switches by the door. 
Then he stopped. There was a noise at the other end of the room, as if something was crawling up the iron corkscrew stair. If it's gone into the gallery, he said, well and good. He hastily turned on the lights, crossed the room and climbed up the stairs. But he could see nothing. His grandfather had placed a little gate at the top of the stair, so that children could run and romp in the gallery without fear of accident. This Eustace closed, and, having considerably narrowed the circle of his search, returned to his desk by the fire. How gloomy the library was. There was no sense of intimacy about the room. The few busts that an 18th-century Bolsover had brought back from the grand tour might have been in keeping in the old library. Here they seemed out of place. They made the room feel cold, in spite of the heavy red damask curtains and great gilt cornices. With a crash, two heavy books fell from the gallery to the floor. Then, as Bolsover looked, another, and yet another. Very well, you'll starve of this, my beauty, he said. We'll do some little experiments on the metabolism of rats deprived of water. Go on, chuck them down. I think I've got the upper hand. He turned once again to his correspondence. The letter was from the family solicitor. It spoke of his uncle's death, and of the valuable collection of books that had been left to him in the will. There was one request, he read, which certainly came as a surprise to me. As you know, Mr. Adrian Borsover had left his instructions that his body was to be buried in as simple a manner as possible at Eastbourne. He expressed a desire that there should be neither wreaths nor flowers of any kind, and hoped that his friends and relatives would not consider it necessary to wear mourning. The day before his death we received a letter cancelling these instructions. He wished his body to be embalmed. He gave us the address of a man we were to employ, Penever, Ludgate Hill, with orders that his right hand was to be sent to you, stating that it was at your special request. The other arrangements as to the funeral remained unaltered. Good Lord, said Eustace, what in the world was the old boy driving at? And what in the name of all as holy as that? Someone was in the gallery. Someone pulled a cord attached to one of the blinds and it had rolled up with a snap. Someone must be in the gallery, for a second blind did the same. Someone must be walking round the gallery, for one after the other the blinds sprang up, letting in the moonlight. I haven't got to the bottom of this yet, said Eustace, but I will before the night is very much older. And he hurried up the corkscrew stair. He just got to the top and the lights went out a second time, and he heard again the scuttling along the floor. Quickly he stole on tiptoe in the dim moonshine in the direction of the noise, feeling as he went for one of the switches. His fingers touched the metal knob at last. He turned on the electric light. About ten yards in front of him, crawling along the floor, was a man's hand. Eustace stared at it in utter astonishment. It was moving quickly, in the manner of a geometric caterpillar. The five fingers humped up one moment, flattened out the next. The thumb appeared to give a crab-like motion to the whole. While he was looking too surprised to stir, the hand disappeared round the corner. Eustace ran forward. He no longer saw it, but he could hear it as it squeezed its way behind the books on one of the shelves. A heavy volume had been displaced. There was a gap in the row of books where it had got in. In his fear, lest it should escape him again, he seized the first book that came to his hand and plugged it into the hole. Then, emptying two shelves of their contents, he took the wooden boards and propped them up in front to make his barrier doubly sure. "'I wish Saunders was back,' he said. "'One can't tackle this sort of thing alone.' It was after eleven, and there seemed little likelihood of Saunders returning before twelve. He did not dare to leave the shelf unwatched, even to run downstairs to ring the bell. Morton, the butler, often used to come round about eleven to see that the windows were fastened, but he might not come. Eustace was thoroughly unstrung. At last he heard steps down below. "'Morton!' he shouted. "'Morton! Sir! Has Mr. Saunders got back yet?' "'Not yet, sir. Well, bring me some brandy and hurry up about it. 
Now you're in the gallery, you duffer. Thanks, said Eustace as he emptied the glass. Don't go to bed yet, Morton. There are a lot of books that have fallen down by accident. Bring them up and put them back in their shelves. Morton had never seen Bolsover in so talkative a mood as on that night. Here, said Eustace, when the books had been put back and dusted. You might hold up these boards for me, Morton. That beast in the box got out and I've been chasing it all over the place. I think I hear it chewing at the books, sir. They're not valuable, I hope. I think that's a carriage, sir. I'll go and call Mr Saunders. It seemed to Eustace that he was away for five minutes, but it could hardly have been more than one when he returned with Saunders. All right, Morton, you can go now. I'm up here, Saunders. What's all the row? asked Saunders as he lounged forward with his hands in his pockets. Luck had been with him all the evening. He was completely satisfied, both with himself and with Captain Lockwood's taste in wines. What's the matter? Look to me to be an F blue funk. That old devil of an uncle of mine, began Eustace. Oh, I can't explain it all. It's his hand that's been playing old Harry all the evening, but I've got a corner behind these books. You've got to help me catch it. What's up with you, Eustace? What's the game? It's no game, you silly idiot. If you don't believe me, take one of those books and put your hand in and feel. All right, said Saunders. But wait till I roll up my sleeve. Accumulated dust of centuries, eh? He took off his coat, knelt down and thrust his arm along the shelf. There's something there, quite enough, he said. It's got a funny stumpy end to it, whatever it is, nips like a crab. Ah, no, you don't. He put his hand out in the flash. Shove in a book quickly. Now it can't get out. What was it? asked Eustace. It was something that wanted very much to get hold of me. I felt what seemed like a thumb and forefinger. Give me some brandy. How are we to get it out of there? What about a landing net? No good. It would be too smart for us. I tell you, Saunders, it can cover the ground far faster than I can walk, but I think I can see how I can manage it. The two books at the end of the shelf. The big ones that go right back against the wall. The others are very thin. I'll take out one at a time, and you slide the rest along until you have it squashed between the end two. It certainly seems to be the best plan. One by one, as they took out the books, the space behind grew smaller and smaller. There was something in it that was certainly very much alive. Once they caught sight of fingers pressing outward for a way of escape, at last they had it pressed between the two big books. There's muscle there, if there isn't flesh and blood, said Saunders as he held them together. It seems to be the hand right enough, too. I suppose this is a sort of infectious hallucination. I've read about such cases before. Infectious fiddlesticks, said Eustace, his face white with anger. Bring the thing downstairs. We'll get it back into the box. It was not altogether easy, but they were successful at last. Drive in the screws, said Eustace. You won't run any risks. But the box in this old desk of mine. There's nothing in it that I want. Here's the key. Thank goodness there's nothing wrong with the lock. Quite a lively evening, said Saunders. Now let's hear more about your uncle. They sat up together until early morning. Saunders had no desire for sleep. Eustace was trying to explain and to forget, to conceal from himself a fear that he had never felt before. The fear of walking alone down the long corridor to his bedroom. 